This is KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. Tonight, I'm sharing a pre-recorded interview that is focused on learning about a fish species of special conservation concern, the Sacramento pike minnow. Although native to California, this fishery has been introduced to watersheds outside of its native range, and this includes the Eel River. These are large freshwater fish, and they're members of the Cyprinid family. So that makes them a minnow, but they actually can reach a maximum size of about three and a half feet. Sacramento pike minnow were introduced to the Eel River in the late 1970s to Lake Pillsbury and have spread throughout the watershed, and they threaten native salmonids via predation and competition for food. Threats from pike minnow are also expected to worsen as rivers warm. So last week, I sat down with Phil Georgiakakos and Abel Brumo, who are two researchers that are investigating how pike minnow can be managed in the Eel River, particularly during critical bottlenecks of their life histories, and as they move through or reside in a habitat bottleneck along the riverscape. Understanding the impacts of non-native and invasive species is really important. Invasive species are capable of causing species extinction of native species. They also reduce biodiversity. They compete with native organisms for limited resources, and they can actually alter habitats. And this can have pretty significant impacts economically, and then also it can cause a fundamental disruption to the ecosystem itself. Invasive species are also among one of the leading threats to native wildlife. Uh, According to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, approximately 42% of threatened or endangered species are at risk due to the presence of invasive species. You may be wondering what makes a species invasive, and an invasive species can be any kind of living organism, It can be an amphibian, a plant, an insect, a fish, a fungus, a bacteria. Um, Even seeds or eggs can be invasive. And it's any of these living organisms that are not native to an ecosystem and that causes that ecosystem harm. Um, Invasive species can harm the environment, they can harm the economy, they can even harm human health. And usually these species that grow and reproduce quickly and spread aggressively with the potential to cause harm are given the label invasive. So let's turn to my interview, which, as I just mentioned, is pre-recorded, so apologies in advance. We won't be able to take any questions. Welcome to the Ecology Hour, and uh, tonight I'm joined by Phil Georgiakakos and Abel Brumo, who are two fisheries biologists that are uh, working on the North Coast and doing research and I think it will probably be best to just start. Maybe you guys can just introduce yourselves and we I'll start with you, Phil, if you want to get started and say a little bit about who you are and where you work and what you're working on. 
Sure. Well, thanks a lot for having me. My name is Phil Georgiakakos. I'm a, a river ecologist. I'm currently a, a postdoc at UC Berkeley, um, and I've been working on the Eel River since 2013. And I did my PhD dissertation really in the headwaters of the Eel River at a, a UC Berkeley reserve called the Angelo Coast Range Reserve. And hopefully we'll get into a little bit of the research that I did there later. Um, but currently I'm, I'm continued expanding my work in the area and I've been focused on a number of different topics, but the main one has been um, the Sacramento pike minnow, which is an introduced fish that we'll talk about at length tonight. And um, kind of the ecological impacts it's had on the rest of the aquatic community and how that might change going into the future and what we can do to kind of protect and preserve our native species. Great. Yeah. And um, Abel, if you'll take a second to introduce yourself too, that'd be great. For sure. Thanks, Santa. Uh, my name is Abel Grimo. I work for Stillwater Sciences as a fisheries biologist um, based out of Arcata. Um, I've been working for Stillwater for about 14 years on a variety of different projects um, and have particular interest in the Eel River watershed and, and working um, to protect native salmonids and other um, important native species. Um, and I've been working um, on studying pike minnow, looking at opportunities to control their population in, in the Eel River where they're not native. Um, since about 2017, and a lot of that work has been in collaboration with the Weot tribe and more recently with Phil and his other collaborators at UC Berkeley, as well as CFW, ELM, and others. Um, so super excited to be here and thanks for having us. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so for everyone listening, CDFW is Cow, Fish, and Wildlife, and BLM is the Bureau of Land Management. We all speak in acronyms in the science world. And I am really excited to have you both here because I, I do, I want to have a conversation about Sacramento pike minnow. They're kind of an interesting fish species. And as I was telling you guys earlier, I, I have a history of working with them. When I lived in Morro Bay, we did a lot of um, research on the Sacramento pike minnow because they were, they're native California fish, but they were introduced into that watershed. And the running theory is that they came into the reservoir potentially through an aqueduct or maybe as a bait fish and then um, seeded portions of the watershed. And, and we wanted to understand more about their impacts on salmonids in that watershed. And so they're, they're kind of an interesting fish and, and they, and they kind of can get a bad reputation here on the North coast because they aren't native to this area. And so I guess Maybe the best way to get going is to talk a little bit about the the fish itself and, and a little bit about um, like where their native habitat is and what kinds of um, parts of the rivers they like to occupy so that we can get so just to kind of set the stage for for our future discussion of, of why they are an issue. Um, maybe I'll jump in and fill in, fill in the gaps. Um, you know, they're a large minnow, um, Sacramento pipe minnow. They can reach like 40 inches in length, imagine over three feet. Um, and they can live to be about 16 years old. Um, so they're a large, old predatory fish. Um, and they're, they're native, uh, 
in several places in California, including the Sacramento-San Joaquin Basin, uh, the Pajaro River, the Salinas River, the Russian River, uh, the Upper Pitt River, and also the Clear Lake Basin. And Clear Lake is where the theory is that they were they were moved from Clear Lake into the Upper Eel River, um, Lake Pillsbury and Upper Eel River, probably through a, a bait bucket introduction um, from fishermen. Um, and that was back in around 1979 when that happened. And um, I, I guess there's been some interesting genetic studies that showed that that was likely just three or four individuals that founded the entire population of the Yellow River. And that was that was Andrew Penzinger at uh, Cal Poly that did that work. Um, and then, yeah, they've rapidly spread across much of the rest of the watershed since that late 1970s introduction, um, with a few exceptions. Um, what else did I miss, Phil? That was great, Abel. Uh, maybe a couple of other things. Like you mentioned briefly, they, they are predatory animals, so they're consuming other animals throughout their whole lives. And when they're small as juveniles, they eat bugs and aquatic invertebrates. And then as they get bigger, they slowly transition to eating almost entirely other fish and some crayfish. Uh, and kind of an interesting characteristic that pike minnow have, like other minnows, like Abel mentioned, their minnows refers to the family that they're in, the fish family, Ciprinidae. Um, so despite the fact that they get quite large, they're still a minnow. Um, but they have these things called pharyngeal teeth, which are teeth that are located not on the jaw, like our teeth are, but back in the throat and they're scissor-like teeth. So as they go through and munch other fish, uh, they kind of pass through the jaw and then hit those pharyngeal teeth and get sliced up and then back into the gut. Um, so they're pretty effective predators. And one, an interesting thing is that, like I mentioned, they, they shift their diet from juveniles um, eating bugs predominantly to adults eating mostly other fish. And so as juveniles, they kind of compete with a lot of the other native fishes, like our native salmonids, which are the, the river rearing ones, at least, are also consuming bugs, and they compete with those. And then as adults, the bigger pike minnow can actually consume those same fish. So there's a, a number of different ecological interactions that they kind of participate in in, in the Eel River food web. Oh, I was just going to say a lot of people really do latch on to the fact that they're, you know, big predators and they eat fish, but that, that those competitive interactions are potentially really important um, and good for everybody to remember. Oh, we'll elaborate. So the, the competitive actions, we elaborate on that a little bit more. I'm, I'm not sure I followed your comment. So yeah, after you, Phil. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I guess competition between two animals occurs when they're both pursuing a shared limiting resource. So in this case, the shared limiting resource might be uh, invertebrate prey in some locations where both juvenile salmonids are trying to catch bugs and eat them and juvenile pike minnow are trying to catch bugs and eat them. Ah, so got you. Because there's not an infinite supply of bugs, you know, there's two things trying to consume them and there's less for both species. Um, one kind of interesting caveat is that there's been some work done showing that pike minnow are more effective competitors at higher river temperatures. So they have more of an impact on the salmonids when river waters are warmer. And that was 
work done by Brett Harvey and Carl Reese, uh, where they fed both pike minnow and juvenile steelhead bugs at different river temperatures, and, and the pike minnow depressed the growth of the steelhead at higher temperatures, but not at lower temperatures. Is that because, do you think that's because pike minnow prefer warmer water temperatures anyways? And maybe we should talk a little bit about that, like what the kind of ideal pike minnow habitat is. It, it could be a function of the of both of the animals' physiology. You know, almost every animal has what you can think of like peak performance at some temperature. And it's kind of a curve of the performance of some trait, whether it's swimming speed or growth rate or amount of uh prey that an animal can catch. But um, pike minnows peak performance is probably at a higher temperature than a lot of the, the juvenile salmonids that rear in the river. Definitely. And that, that physiological performance really influences their preference and the locations that they seek out in terms of the, the temperatures that they seek out. Um, and so that, that does have implications for kind of when they are most likely to impact Salmonids. So, for example, you know, coho salmon like really cold water, and they typically are in cold water through the summer. And you know, there's a pretty short time frame in which pike minnow will overlap with coho, um, and it's you know likely during their spring and early summer out migration period um, when pike minnow are kind of <laughs> moving up the river um, uh, and looking to feed as at the same time that juvenile coho are moving and other salmonids and lamprey and other species might be moving downstream. And Phil actually his his dissertation work really um, really highlighted the importance of water temperature in terms of when those different species are interacting um, and, and how long uh, certain salmonids interact with with pike minnow throughout during different years. Yeah. Um, so pike minnows seem like they can really tolerate much higher water temperatures than a lot of our, our native salmonids can. Um, and what Abe was, Abe was just referring to um, was part of my dissertation work up in the headwaters of the South Fork Eel at that reserve that I mentioned earlier, the Angelo Coast Range Reserve. And what I did was I surveyed um, the river at the reserve and documented the time at which pike minnow arrive at the reserve each year. And that kind of brings up another aspect that we haven't touched on yet is that these are large animals and they're highly mobile. Um, they can move a, a huge number, a huge distance each year, um, you know, hundreds of kilometers in some systems, like in the Sacramento, the in tagged individuals have been tracked, I think 300 kilometers over the course of a year. Um, and what we see in the headwaters of the South Fork is that pike minnow migrate upstream into those headwaters each, each spring and occupy that area throughout the summer. And then at some point in the fall or the winter, they move downstream to an overwintering location somewhere maybe around like, I don't know, able to Piercy or Piercy. Yeah, yeah that's that kind of where vicinity. we're thinking about right now. Um, and what part of my, my dissertation work showed was that pike minnow move upstream earlier in years that are warmer relative to cooler years. So the timing of that migration happens earlier in warmer years, and that 
increases the amount of time that they overlap with the native species in those headwater reaches, which are really important for juvenile salmonid rearing. Huh, that's interesting. So they, I mean, it's not like the same kind of migration that like a, a salmonid would make, but they do move around in the system seasonally. I didn't realize that they did that. That's really pretty interesting. I think I had heard, and this might've been another Harvey research, um, you know, uh, product, but I had heard um, that during some radio telemetry studies that they, they documented that pikemen will move around a lot at night. Is that primarily when they're feeding is at night? Yeah, that's a really good um, good point to bring up. So yeah, Brett Harvey, you know, a lot of the work we're doing, we're standing on his shoulders and, and his lab. I mean, they did all kinds of interesting studies back in the 90s that we're kind of building on him um, and, and continuing to learn from. Um, but they looked at both large-scale movements, those seasonal movements that Phil described, and also sort of daily movements where, you know, they're, they had tagged, you know, five to 10 pike minnow in a, in a large pool. And then they noticed that when they were using radio telemetry that those individuals would move out of those pools at night into the shallower riffles or, or you know, shallower habitats next to the deep pools. Um, and the thought is that those, that they're moving in to feed on smaller fish that are in those shallower waters at night. Um, and then uh, a, a study that's currently happening, a, collab a collaboration between UC Berkeley, CDFW, the Weyot Tribe, and others um, has shown some pretty interesting similar results. And I should actually let Phil speak to that because he did, <laughs> he was the one who did the analysis, but um, showing some similar movements. Yeah, um, that's, we're, we're finding pretty similar things. So we're, the, the study that Abel was talking about is this big tagging project that we're undergoing right now. And um, we're using these things that are little acoustic tags. So we've captured a bunch of pike minnow and uh, surgically implanted these little tags that emit a very short high frequency sound that travels well through the water. And we have along our study reach, which is about, uh, 80 kilometers or so. Um, we have a, a couple of different state, like 12 different stations with these underwater hydrophones that if a fish swims past one of these things, the tag emits its little ping and then the hydrophone hears that and it actually can recognize individuals. So it knows which fish has swam by the hydrophone at which time. So using this different technology, we're, fi we're finding some similar things to what Harvey and Rod Nakamoto did back in the 90s where we're, we have our receiver in one pool and the fish are leaving that pool during the, the nighttime and then returning and kind of hunkering down and milling around it during the day. Um, and presumably it's, it's kind of an analogous finding where they're going into those shallower riffle areas and hunting during the nighttime. Um, it's kind of interesting why they might do that. One is that uh, some earlier work even by Larry Brown and Peter Moyle showed that a bunch of other fishes, um, when they're in the presence of pike minnow, shift their distribution. They leave the larger, deeper pools and go into those riffles. So pike minnow might just follow them at night, and they might do it at night as a way to kind of limit the, their vulnerability to predation themselves. 
you know, that there's not that many things that eat pipe manure, but there, we've had a number of reports of otters eating them. I'm sure an osprey or a bald eagle would take one and they're kind of most vulnerable to that when they're in those shallow riffles area, riffle areas. So, I mean, that's kind of speculation, but it might be why they are, are doing that at night. Don't they predate on themselves some? Is that true? Yeah, um, the work by Rod Nakamoto and Brett Harvey, the diet work, um, you know, they, in, in general, they showed that pike minnow eat a little bit of everything and they eat sort of what's there <laughs> in their in their environment, um, but they will eat young pike minnow. Um, I, I don't think it was a major part of their diet, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they, they eat young, they, they do eat conspecifics, so that's just, you know, the same species. Um, but I think they eat them at a reduced rate from what you would expect based on just their abundance. So I, what that means, I think they would prefer to eat other things other than juvenile pike minnow if they can find them. Well, that yeah. would make a lot of sense from <laughs> life history strategy. Yeah, and that kind of brings up another really cool part of the pike minnow biology and, and other minnows that I think we definitely should talk about. So we may as well talk about it now. And that's the when pike minnow and other minnows are injured, they release uh, a pheromone substance, a kind of chemical alarm cue that's known as Shrekstoff. Um, and so basically when an individual is injured, the other fish that are in the same habitat or nearby can sense this, this chemical alarm cue in the water. And then that causes them to, to take cover and flee and kind of change their behavior. Um, so that's something that, you know, we've been aware of as we've been trying to develop different uh, population control strategies or, or ways to remove pike minnow from the eel. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a pretty neat evolution um, evolutionary trait that these fish have. Yeah, well, that's why they're not like a sports fish, right? Because they, uh, well, they're, I don't know, there could be One a lot reason. of reasons. <laughs> yeah, but I know like when, when I worked with pike minnow, when we were trying to figure out what the most effective methods for either removing them for the system was, were, rod and reel did not work real well because of that that reason which maybe is a good segue to talk a little bit about even though they're native to the Sacramento and San Joaquin you know they've been introduced in all of these other watersheds and there have been efforts to try and suppress or eradicate them and I'm just wondering like if you guys want to talk at all about that and and and, and I think this is a little bit tied to some of the work you're doing with the WIAT too right Abel? Definitely um yeah I mean I think you know building off of some of the the early efforts to do that to look into you know after after pike minnow came into the system in the early 80s and people started getting alarmed um you know that kind of initiated the series of studies that brett harvey and his lab did and then cdfw also at that time started doing some monitoring and testing out different approaches to remove them um and then honestly there was a pretty long hiatus where the species didn't get a lot of direct attention. I mean, there are definitely people doing things here and there. Um, and, but then the Wiat tribe um, and also the Eel River Recovery Project and, and Pat Higgins um, around the same time in the, you know, mid 2015 to 2018 time zone, 
time frame um, started trying to to look at the issue. And so with the WIAT tribe, the, the first round of funding they got through US Fish and Wildlife Service was back in 2017. Um, and kind of in collaboration with them, we, we put together a population monitoring approach, kind of looking at trying to understand how many pike minnow are in the main stem South Fork Yellow River downstream of Rattlesnake Creek. Um, and then also um, looking at evaluating different approaches to remove pike minnow from the river. Um, and then at the same time, uh, we did some examination of the diet, like what, what they were eating by looking inside their stomach, um, and then kind of came up with a series of recommendations for additional research and monitoring. And so that was phase one. And then we've been, uh, there's a project that's ongoing and we're in kind of wrapping up this, the second year that's kind of building off of those objectives. So additional population suppression and kind of you know using the things that that we're learning or working well and trying to remove pike minnow um, and continued population monitoring and then doing some more um, diet analyses that are kind of uh, a little bit more sophisticated diet look look at the diet um, and yeah so I guess we've we've tried a bunch of different population suppression approaches um, including boat electrofishing. Um, Bike nets um, in combination with boat electrofishing, seine netting, baited fish traps, fishing. Um, and then more recently, we finally, the, the Weot tribe got permitted to do both spear fishing and gill netting. Um, and I guess to, to jump to the punchline, um, you know, they each, each different technique has some pros and cons and, and locations where it works well. But we're, we're definitely finding that gill netting is one of the most successful approaches. Um, and doing gill netting in combination with, with boat electrofishing, when you can get a boat in the river, um, or in combination with spear fishing, when you can kind of dry fish into gill nets, is, is pretty effective um, way of removing it. Now, when you're gill netting, though, you can only probably get certain sizes so are you mostly just targeting the adults at that point yeah for sure i mean we're, we're actually really i mean getting permitted to gill net you know it's a big deal um, we're definitely aware of the native fish including you know non-listed native fish like sacramento sucker um, that we don't want to catch um and so we we're selecting larger mesh sizes that juvenile submonics can swim through and we're also doing the work only in the summer. We're only permitted to do it in the summer when adult salmonids are not present in the system. Uh, and yeah, so I think we you could use gillnets to catch the smaller size classes, but really focused on the big predatory individuals and the the larger fish that are more likely to contribute, you know, to the as um, contribute to the population in terms of um, spawning. Mm hmm. Now, do you ever have concerns, though, if you remove, well, I guess you're working in a pretty big system, but if you if you remove most of the large predatory and reproductively abundant, you know, viable fish, I've heard that that there could be like a population explosion because of their tendency to to kind of eat whatever they can. And so then they're habits of predating on their own young and that when you remove all the adults that there can be a population explosion and I, i'm just kind of curious if that 
is something that you guys had to take into consideration and and what kind of conversations you had about that that's a that's a really good question Anna. um yeah it's definitely a concern and it's definitely something that we've been um, talking about and, and aware of and i think it needs to you know we're in the process of developing a species management plan with, with input from a, a technical advisory committee, including Phil um, and, and agency folks. And uh, I think that, you know, as part of the, the long-term management for this species, I think it is important to, to attempt to remove some of the smaller size classes as well as the larger size classes for the reason you mentioned. Um, I know that that, uh, that removing large fish like you said can cause um this you know it's kind of like it's kind of like a competitive release or a predatory release where suddenly you know all the small fish don't have any big fish to compete with and they can come in and take over the population um i don't i guess there haven't been really good studies for pike minnow on that but i know that that has occurred with smallmouth bass and other fish um, so yeah, it's definitely something to be aware of. Oh yeah, so that's that was going to be my next question was have they actually done any studies on this? Because it 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 had come up in our conversations when I worked with that species, and I just it, it you know I was kind of remembering what Phil said earlier that that's not really their preference to predate on themselves, and it's a small component of their diet. So I wonder if it really is an issue or not. If there really if there is a chance of a some kind of population shift as a result of removing the large adults, or if maybe you're really being more effective because you're removing the large reproductively viable adults. Um, yeah, and, and, I mean, you're kind of on the cutting edge too, right? Like part of what we're doing is this is we're trying things out and seeing what's working. And, you know, this is something that we're considering and something that's happening is we're taking the data, hopefully by doing surveys to look at the impacts of these various removal efforts and from that data, we should be able to tell if there is this like overcompensation or responding effect of juveniles growing to reproductive size very quickly, um, which would be something that we would in turn, you know, learn from that information and then maybe change our tactics based on how we see the populations respond. So it is, it's not like, it's hard to be totally black and white and cut and dry and not responsive, but really you try to I guess it's called adaptive management where you take the data that you are collecting during your management practice and then iterate on that, incorporate it again, try to learn from it and then change what you're doing to hopefully, you know, be more effective based on your goals. Yeah, yeah. that's that's always a smart way to approach things and I mean, it's just kind of speaks to just the challenges in trying to manage any population of non-native species. I mean, it's challenging when they are sedentary plants, but it's even more challenging when they're mobile organisms. And um, and because they do have such an incredible um, ability to reproduce. I mean, I was reading, I was trying to kind of brush up on my Sacramento pike minnow knowledge before the call, and I had jotted down a note that they can lay 15,000 to 40,000 eggs a year. And so in like one female's lifetime, um, she could lay up to a half a million eggs was what I read, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. <laughs> um, it's mind-boggling. It's a yeah, lot of babies. Right? 
Um, yeah, and it's it, it really brings home a, an important point, and that is that you know everybody involved in this effort understands that you know we're not trying to eradicate the species from the system. We know that's not a realistic objective. It's really trying to suppress the population to a level where their impacts on native fish are, are minimized. Um, in, in particular, you know, from my perspective, doing this during the time frame in which this large restoration of physical habitat across the basin is happening. And so it's kind of, it's trying to help the native fish while all the physical habitat restoration kind of comes to fruition. Um, at least that's one way of looking at it. Um, although <laughs> we probably could talk a little bit about um, the the Trojan Y concept, which is, is maybe the one potential way that we could um, get close to eradicating the species from the system. Is this some kind of genetic something or other? What's the Trojan Y? <laughs> I guess we have to talk about it now. Yeah, you've um, piqued my interest. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a, a, a genetic concept where the um, a fish, the, the chromosomes are altered such that you're um, you're creating um, YY males. Um, and so they, they have two, the males have two Y chromosomes. Um, and then you're releasing these YY males into the system. And then they interbreed with other type minnow. And the, basically their offspring are all males. So you're kind of overloading the system with males. Um, so anyway, it's something that's being explored at, uh, as a possibility, it's been tested on in smaller systems with other species like brook trout. Um, but it's, you know, it's one potential means of uh, kind of overwhelming the population with males. And so there are less females to reproduce. Um, huh. But So you would, yeah. you would basically rear these fish and some kind of hatchery, these fish with this genetic mutation and then release them in the system to then have that gene introduced into the population? Is that how that would work? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm, um, I know that right now there, there are a couple of graduate projects at Cal Poly Humboldt that are exploring this idea. I think there's there are two different grad students working with Andre Buheister and Rafael uh, Cuevas Uribe um, looking at um, Kind of evaluating the feasibility of this, and part of that is, is using a developing a population dynamics model for pike meadow um, that kind of looks at you know how many how many of these genetically modified males would you need to release to have the desired effect um, you know in different different scenarios using this population dynamics model, um, and then the other side of that is actually evaluating the feasibility of, of doing the genetic manipulations and trying to figure out what that takes for this species to raise them in captivity. Um, but this is very early in the process of kind of looking at the feasibility of this idea. And of course, there are a lot of, you know, with any kind of, you know, release of genetically altered uh, fish, there's definitely a lot of considerations that would need and, you know, need to be addressed before that actually happened. Um, there, there's definitely some exploration of that idea right now that's mm. happening. If you're just tuning in, I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. 
Tonight, I have a pre-recorded interview with two researchers, Phil Georgiakakis and Abel Brumo, who are focusing their research efforts on managing a non-native fish species, the Sacramento pike minnow, in the Eel River watershed. And you are listening to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. That's listener-supported community radio. We stream live at kzyx.org, and we're also found on Facebook. There's also been, I think, is this in Oregon where they've had derbies? Yeah, I mean, uh, so that's uh, targeting a different pike minnow species. That's northern pike minnow in the Columbia River drainage. And it's basically a, a bounty program, you're right, where you can get paid a certain amount to catch fish of a certain size. And there are little promotions like you can get a, a prize for catching a tagged fish. Um, and there's a couple of people, maybe like five or six individuals who are really making a living catching northern pike minnow in the Columbia River drainage, like uh, making, you know, six figures a year or something pretty impressive like that. Whoa. They must um, not release that um, chemical, huh? <laughs> I, I think the river is so big and there's a, there's a lot of that effort is right below the dams where the predation is really heavy and, and fish stuff stack up in there. And I think I get the sense that maybe it's not, yeah, it's less of an issue. Dilution is the solution um, to Shrek stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the limitations is also it's just a big financial investment. There's over, I, I think it's like a million, couple million dollars a year that's invested in just the bounty program payouts. And yeah, so that's uh, one of the challenges is is the financial investment. The other is that the Eel River is, is really rugged terrain. It's hard to cover. Um, it's less boatable. So getting the kind of effort that you would need to really have a a fishing impact on this, the, the river scale and the eel, I think would be pretty challenging. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I do know that on the eel, there were, I don't know how many years they did it. I probably should know this, but um, they did a bounty or not a bounty program, but a derby, a pikeman or derby. Um, I think it was back in the early 2000s. Um, and so I know it's been tried. And I mean, it's something that I'm sure we'll talk about in the management plan and people have brought up as a, as a possibility. I mean, it's, from our relatively limited efforts to catch fish with angling, um, it's not been as successful as a lot of us thought it would be. Um, particularly, you know, a lot of us are avid anglers and we expect to just, you know, go out there and slay bike minnow, but it's definitely not as effective as, as I thought it would be. Um, but I think there's a learning curve. I know there are people out there that are really good at catching bike minnow. Um, but the idea is even if the, you know, you don't catch many fish individually if you had a large part of the population that, that sort of had motivation to do that and you know were being encouraged to keep pike minnow that maybe it could have a, a positive impact as part of a larger suppression program. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit like why the We Ought Tribe and all these other partners are working together on this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the tribe was particularly interested in it, and I can't, you know, I can't speak to all of their motivations, um, but we, you know, we put in a proposal. Really, it was a, an area that we felt like it, it deserved more study. You know, when we went into this, at least 
you know, I, I definitely went in with an open mind. It was like, you know, maybe this isn't as big of a problem as everybody thinks it is. And we want to, we want to better understand the extent of the problem. We want to better understand the species um, and what the impacts are. Um, and I think as the project has evolved and we've learned more about the species and and their interactions with salmonids. I mean, there's still a, a lot of unanswered questions about their impacts, when they are, how how big they are. And I, I think we're hoping to, to start to answer those questions in the current study in terms of you know, how many salmonids are they eating, how many, how many other native species like lamprey are they eating. And in fact, that was one of the original motivating factors for the Weot tribe was we were we were studying Pacific lamprey um, and we I think they had some observations of pike minnow you know preying on lamprey um, and that was one of their actual original motivations to, to start looking in, into the species and then they brought you know they brought salmonids along. Mm -hmm. Were they, are they preying on the lamp the juvenile lamprey? Yeah, yeah. In fact, some of the the diet work by Brett Harvey and Rod Nakamoto um, show that during certain times of the year, I think it was particularly in the winter and the wet season, that uh, juvenile or larval lamprey were kind of a big part of their diet, um, but pretty big part of their diet. I'd also add that you know there's a ton of kind of motivation and momentum for salmonid recovery in the the Eel River and particularly in the South Fork right now. And it's been like a, a great opportunity and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to collaborate with, with all of these people that are kind of interested in salmonid recovery and this component, like what happens when our juvenile salmonids leave their natal tributaries, the tributaries that they have emerged from the reds in and they enter a main stem, if, it, if it's just full of these non-native predators it's like a you know it's a gauntlet that they have to make as they make it down to the ocean and it kind of negates a lot of those it can negate those restoration dollars if those are all invested into the tributaries um, which is valuable work for sure but the main stem is, is another whole component that i think was maybe uh lacking the attention like abel mentioned so we're excited to hopefully you know learn how we can try to address that yeah, and I, I'm curious, Phil. So, what 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 uh, piqued your interest to focus a lot of your um, current research on Sacramento pike minnow? Um, I have just always been into the impacts of predatory animals, and and I love salmon. So there's like this big predatory animal that definitely has all sorts of different impacts. There's the impacts of it preying on juveniles. The the competition that I mentioned beforehand. Um, there's also just like impacts of pike minnow being present in an area. Like you can imagine this big predatory fish that's hunkered down in a pool and it scares all of the other fish out of that area. So that limits foraging opportunities. Some of those big deep pools get stratified throughout the summer. So they're cooler at the bottom. Um, which salmonids can use as thermal refugia during like the hottest, most stressful time of the year. And a pike minnow parked in that pool can limit their access. So there's all sorts of interesting ecological interactions that are a part of this like restoration story as well. And that's like what's been, in addition to like 
being particularly interested in restoring Salmana, it's also very intellectually stimulating to think about all of these different interactions that pikemen are having. Yeah, and really meaningful because as Abel mentioned, like there there is a body of research to lean on for pikemeno, but it's not it's it has been largely carried by a few people, and so there's a lot of unknowns about this um, particular species. I, you know, it's interesting too, like, like thinking about how these fish are pretty well adapted to persist in um, warm and low flow conditions like drought. It seems like I could see how their impacts to salmonids could potentially become even greater as we are being told to expect more periods of extended drought. Yeah, yeah, and that's through a, a number of different mechanisms. You know, like I mentioned earlier, they're so the pike minnow are, are more effective competitors in warmer waters. Um, they can limit access to those deep stratified pools, which are very important thermal refugia for salmonids in warm conditions. Pike minnow can also just eat more when it's warmer. So like the rate at which food moves through their system is highest at warmer temperatures, at, at pretty warm temperatures. So kind of taken collectively, I think that all of those things suggest that their cumulative impact, whether it's through competition, predation, or those kind of uh, indirect effects of occupying habitats all might get worse as, as things are warmer. And the salmonids are just more stressed too. So right. physiologically they're stressed and if you add, you start to layer on more and more of these other stressors um, can kind of have synergistic effects. Phil already touched on this, but, you know, the other, the other layers, you know, that he showed with his, his dissertation work is, you know, drier, hotter years, pikemen are going to be arriving into those cold water reaches and the headwaters a lot earlier. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, adding that into the the layer the layer cake that Phil mentioned, um, yeah, I think it's you're totally right that that climate change and how pike minnow or the impacts of pike minnow on salmonids and other native fish are significant are are more severe under a changing climate. Right, and that's like a critical time for juvenile salmonids because they're they've like just emerged and they're trying to eat and get as big as they possibly can. <laughs> How can pike minnow be limited in where they move? And, and this might be a good time to talk a little bit about your weir project too, which I'm curious to learn more about. Yeah, uh, I can start us off, Abel. Um, so one of the things that we have talked about that was really building on my dissertation work, finding this migration, um, is that pike minnow are moving upstream in the spring and those upstream areas are really strongholds for oversummering habitat for our juvenile native salmonids. So we kind of brainstormed a way that we might block that migration upstream. And our idea is to erect this, uh, it's called a resistance board weir. And it's basically like an underwater fence um, that will go in hopefully before pike minnow start migrating upstream and after all of uh, the majority of the adult salmonids have migrated downstream. So we'll erect this underwater fence and hopefully that will block pike minnow as they're trying to move upstream and really protect, protect those key 
uh, rearing habitats that remain cool throughout the summer in, in the headwaters. And then I guess the other tier of that effort, you know, it's blocking the migration and then also ideally, you know, being able to remove the adult or the pike minnow as they approach the weir too. So it's removing and then also excluding um, from those cold water reaches. Um, and this, this work is, you know, being done in collaboration with Gabe Rossi at UC Berkeley, who was one of your previous uh, guests, I believe. Um, yeah. And the Weat tribe um, and Caltrout as well. Am I missing? I know I'm missing somebody. And CDFW and, and BLM scientists too. So it's it's really, again, like yeah. this big collaborative effort that I think is making a pretty challenging, potentially impactful project happen. Um, and, you know, one of the, the beauties of all of this work is that we're you know, we're we're trying to actively make a difference, but we're also using it as an opportunity to learn more about not just pipe minnow, but salmonids and the other native fish. And I think the weir, you know, it's a it's a big deal to put a, a channel spanning weir across a large river for a, a number of reasons. Um, and you know, we the, the project team definitely doesn't take it lightly. We want to minimize any impacts on the ecosystem. Um, but we also want to use it as an opportunity to learn. Um, so, you know, there's going to be, we're going to be learning a, a lot about downstream salmon movement and upstream salmon movement. And um, yeah, and definitely pike minnow movement as well. So, and, and I'm sorry, because maybe you said this, but how long would the weir be up? Like, do you just put it up for the summer months or? Yeah, that's the plan. So we'll we'll try to get it, you know, as flows are dropping with the summer recession after after rains stop, uh, we're going to be monitoring the location pretty carefully to see when it's kind of safe and feasible for us to get into the river and, and put it up. And then it'll run through um, kind of the late summer is the plan. We are kind of coming up on the hour. So I'm curious, you know, what what other things do you think are interesting about the species or what's coming up next? I mean, you obviously have some some big work efforts ahead of you with the weir and with the research that you're doing, but are there still questions that you think need to be answered? And is like what kind of research would help us understand the species better and manage it better? I think that there's... Um still some interesting things to be learned about where pike minnow are spawning um, and and also their movement patterns which are kind of coupled with that so there's a number of different uh kind of motivations that fish can have to move within a drainage they might move to find to spawn they might move to feed or they might move to kind of seek refuge from inhospitable conditions so trying to think about the interaction between those three and the seasonal patterns of movement that we're seeing in pike minnow um, is like really intriguing. And I think that that will help us uh, maybe make like a heat map or something of, of the where you might expect to see the biggest impacts from pike minnow during certain times of year and where you might have the best bang for your buck in terms of like removal efforts. Um, so that's exactly. where I, that, I'm really excited about that that aspect of our work. Yeah, I would agree with what Phil just said. Those are some of the key um, 
ongoing research questions. Um, and yeah, in terms of management implications, it's yeah, understanding well, maybe we should be putting all of our suppression effort in these key areas where tightening or overlapping with cell monids or you know, trying to trying to better understand that. Um, and I think this, you know, this these movement patterns that we're documenting in the cell for heel, um, I think it's really important to understand is that is that happening across the watershed? Is that happening in the bamboos and is that happening in the middle fork? Is that happening in the upper main stem? Um, I think there's some evidence that it is happening, but I think trying to better document that um, is important for the, the larger watershed um, as well. Yeah, all right. Well, any any other, did we leave anything out? Is there anything that hasn't been said that should be? I'm sure we left something out. I'm, <laughs> I, you know, there's, there's some other folks we've been working with. I just want to reiterate like all the collaboration and support um, from, you know, various state and federal agencies and, you know, BLM in particular um, and CDFW have really stepped up and really been supportive. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot more to learn and a long way to go, but um, it's really uh, a good group of people uh, working together. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. And, and something that I'd, uh, that we haven't said yet is that, you know, it's not like it's easy to vilify pike minnow as kind of these ecological demons that are out there munching our, uh, you know, beloved salmonids. Um, but it's really a, a human-induced problem, right? We we changed the environment by introducing them into the Eel River, and it's not like the individual animal's fault. They're a pretty pretty cool animal that's uh, the product of millions of years of evolution, and like. Um, just something to keep in mind as we're approaching these eradication efforts is that you can still like respect life and, and the animal itself while trying to restore habitats and ecosystems to the way that they were before we modified them. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And now I'm going to make you guys stay on for just like a minute more because that is a really good point. Like these fish actually did co-evolve with salmon in their natal streams. And so it's like not as much of an issue in the Sacramento, but it's an issue in the eel. Do you guys want to explain a little bit why that is? That's a really good question. I think we've been asked that before and should probably be ready to speak to it. But uh, I think I think it's a, a number of things. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're I mean, I think in the, the Sacramento where they are native, and, and I would I would reiterate what Phil said, that was really well said and, and important to remember um, that, you know, these are these are really cool species that are native to California. Um, and the, sac the Sacramento River is so altered hydrologically um, and through a series of introductions of other non-native fish and other non-native organisms that I think it's it's kind of a hard comparison point with the eel um, in terms of why or if cell monitors are coexisting better um, in that watershed. I mean, I think historically, when you had an intact ecosystem, you know, and, and it's the same in the eel, if the eel didn't have so many alterations um, and so many impacts from the legacy of 
of land use and you know overfishing and the floods, then maybe pike minnow would you know have could coexist with salmonids there. Um, but yeah, I I'm kind of rambling, but I think that I think it's a, it's a really good question. It's a hard one to answer. I mean, in, in the Sacramento River, you've got a lot of non-native predators that are probably um, holding back the bite minnow populations like striped bass and largemouth bass. That's that's one answer. Yeah, it's pretty challenging. It's even it's challenging to even know what the historic state was and what was the historic role of a pike minnow in the Sacramento River and how abundant they were. So trying to think about um, their relative impact. I mean, we don't really know their relative impact now. So going back to pre-alteration conditions or pre-like you know, colonization uh, conditions, it's, it's just a, a very challenging question to even think about. That concludes my interview for tonight with ecologist and postdoc at UC Berkeley, Phil Georgiakakos, and fisheries biologist Abel Brumo with Stillwater Sciences. I want to thank both my guests for sitting down with me to talk about the Sacramento pike minnow. And I also want to take a moment to make a plug for KZYX. The station just wrapped up its fall fundraising campaign, and unfortunately, they fell a little short of their goal of raising $100,000. Those funds are needed for operating expenses, so it's really important that we try to keep our station funded. So I want to just encourage listeners to donate online at kzyx.org. You can donate by mail at P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466, or by calling the office at 707-895-2324. Every donation helps, and KZYX provides critical services for our community, so please support the station that also helps support you. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.